Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 675 for the 10th of January, 2020. This week, if you've wondered whether Linux would be right for you, you're not alone. I've asked myself that question just about every year since sometime in the early 1990s. In short circuits, some PDF documents have restrictions on copying data or printing the file, and sometimes even passwords that prohibit opening the file. There are workarounds. Remember when you could get to safe mode in Windows by pressing F8 during the boot process? Microsoft removed that capability starting with Windows 8, but you can restore it if you don't mind a slightly slower boot. And in spare parts only on the website, when Windows doesn't work right, you might be tempted to wipe the disk and start over. Before using that big hammer, you can often save some time and effort by repairing Windows instead. The Federal Communications Commission wants cellular providers to block fraudulent calls, but don't expect change anytime soon. In the meantime, it's up to us. And 20 years ago, a small but growing group of Linux fans predicted that Linux would take over the desktop. 20 years later, we're still waiting. I've had an internal conversation at least once a year since about 1992. That's a year after Linus Torvalds released his operating system based on Unix. So far, none of those 27 years has turned out to be the year of Linux. Might this be the one? In 1991, Torvalds said he was working on, and I quote here, a free operating system, just a hobby, won't be big and professional like GNU, for 386 and 486 AT clones. Well, it turned out to be a bit more than that. Torvalds liked Unix, but he didn't want to pay for it. In 1983, he told an interviewer, if 386 BSD had been available when I started on Linux, Linux probably never would have happened. So here we are, more than a quarter of a century later. Everyone who uses the Internet uses Linux. Because, as we all know, Linux runs the Internet. That might be a little bit of an overstatement, though. Combined, Linux and Unix power about two-thirds of the servers that run the Internet, and Linux is on a little more than half of those servers. Microsoft IIS runs on the remaining third of the Internet servers. Now, sometimes Microsoft is essential. If an Exchange server or SharePoint is required for a website, Microsoft IIS is a foregone conclusion. But Linux and Unix are the better choice for most people. And that's probably why two-thirds of the Internet is on an X-based server, X being shorthand here for Linux and Unix. That leads to what seems to me to be an obvious question. If Linux is so good that it is the dominant operating system for the Internet, why is it virtually absent from desktop computers? Now, actually, Android is the prevalent operating system. It's on more than 40% of devices compared to 35% for Windows. Smartphones are important, of course, but let's restrict this to desktop and notebook computers, and that includes tablets. In that case, NetMarketShare says that Windows has about 87% of the market. Mac OS checks in a little under 11%. Linux has less than 2%. 
Chrome OS is under half a percent, and BSD Unix is so low that it's actually beaten by Unknown, which has a quarter of a percent. Why is this? Linux is a perfectly capable operating system. It can be configured to look a lot like Windows, or it can be configured to look a lot like the Mac OS. Open source applications that perform all essential tasks exist. So what is the problem? Let's go back to servers on the internet for a moment. Linux servers rarely need to be rebooted. Most configuration changes can be accomplished without a restart, and Linux is generally considered to be more secure than Windows. Windows servers need to be rebooted for many updates, and they can become unstable when multiple database, web, and file servers are in play. Anyone who needs 99.9999% uptime should choose Linux, and do a bunch of other things too. However, learning how to manage a Linux server is more difficult. Simplicity is a key IIS benefit. So ease of use and familiarity are two key considerations that work against Linux for the desktop and notebook computer users. Applications such as LibreOffice have most of Microsoft Office's features, but the user interface is more like a much earlier version of Office. My primary reasons for sticking with Windows include software. I'm familiar with Outlook, Word, Excel, and all of Adobe's Creative Cloud applications. There are no Linux versions of these applications, but they could be run with some success under Wine. Wine stands for Wine is not an emulator. That introduces additional complexity, though, and that additional complexity is likely to cause unwelcome problems at exactly the worst possible time. As with word processor and spreadsheet applications, there are applications that perform the same tasks as well-known commercial programs, such as GIMP in place of Photoshop, for example. Although applications for email, web browsing, and office tasks are abundant, specialized commercial applications are not. There's no shortage of applications, though. Currently, 91,000 packages are available for Linux Mint. Perhaps the major argument against Linux is the huge number of versions or distros. Linux is just the operating system's kernel. The user interface lies on top of the kernel in the distribution package, and there are more than 200 distros. Seriously, though, that is a specious argument against. There are maybe a dozen top contenders, and anyone who's serious about considering Linux should be able to find someone who's familiar with what's available. If not, keep these two terms in mind, Ubuntu and Mint. Some people claim that Linux has more bugs than Windows. I don't buy that. Linux is an open source operating system, which means that some of the developers are donating their time. There are paid developers, though, and several organizations are involved in advancing Linux. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. Users of Windows machines may be puzzled by the lack of drive letters on Linux systems. Those who are familiar with Mac OS computers will recognize the Unix-like directory system. Linux has no problem connecting to Windows-based network drives using Samba, the server message block or SMB protocol. Another absurd argument against Linux says that support is lacking. Have you ever tried to get support from Microsoft or Apple? That's something that I've whined about from time to time, the lack of good support for Apple products and for Microsoft products. Now, if you want serious paid support for Linux, you'll need to get it from an organization such as Red Hat. I've had mixed and mostly negative results dealing with Microsoft support. The technicians, often based in India, offer reassuring comments, promise to resolve the problem, and might actually do so if the problem isn't too complicated. 
but I have also experienced very poor support from technicians who know less than I do. Most Linux support is provided in various online chat groups by people who use Linux and who have solved many of the problems you'll encounter. Maybe the second most important argument against Linux is the lack of drivers for many devices. I installed Linux on an older Windows computer that had a defective Wi-Fi system. The USB device I purchased from a Linux-aware company didn't work at first, and the vendor spent far too much time working with me to resolve the problem. Certainly there was no profit on that sale, but the problem was resolved, and the old Windows computer, a decade old, has a good Wi-Fi connection under Linux. If you play a lot of online or computer-based games, you'll find that Linux isn't exactly welcoming. There's not much to say here. If you want to play games, buy a Windows or Mac OS computer. Perhaps the most idiotic argument I've seen against Linux, and I've seen it many times, is installing Linux is hard. It's not. If you try to second-guess the installer and make random changes, yes, you'll have a mess. But in the past quarter century, I have installed Linux many times on many computers. Just follow the bouncing ball and you'll be fine. There are lots of good arguments for Linux. Open source is good. Windows hides what it does. And the Mac OS? That's even worse. Because it's an open source operating system, anybody can look at the source code for the operating system. Maybe you don't want to look at the code, neither do I for that matter, but there are people who like to pick code apart and find flaws, and when they find flaws, they report them, and then the problems are resolved. Security is another argument for Linux. Microsoft has become a lot better with security, but Linux is based on Unix, so that means file and directory permissions are robust. Package management, repositories, and a lack of shared resources make Linux safer by default. Linux allocates resources better than Windows does, although again, Windows is getting a lot better. Because this is so, installing Linux on an older computer can make the computer appear to be faster. So how about an illogical reason to use Linux? Here's one that a lot of Linux proponents use. If you're a software developer, you'll probably love Linux. That line of reasoning does fail to take into account the fact that most of us are not programmers or developers. So you may not care that Linux has native support for Secure Shell, SSH. And you may not even know what SSH is. It is an advantage. But for most people, that argument in favor of Linux looks like a large load of gobbledygook. Linux is better than Windows and Mac OS when it comes to updates. Or maybe it's worse. It depends on your point of view. Microsoft pushes out big updates twice a year, minor updates on the second Tuesday of each month, and occasional out-of-cycle emergency updates. Linux systems can receive updates for the operating system and all of its installed applications anytime. Whenever an update is available, it'll be presented to you. As a result, you'll see more updates. But those frequent updates address security and operational problems faster than Microsoft or Apple. Those who favor Linux take the too-many-distros argument against Linux and turn it on its head. Windows is Windows. You might have Windows Home, which eliminates some important features, or you might have Windows Pro, but that's about it, unless you're running a Windows server. Linux, as I noted earlier, has more than 200 distros. If you want to install Linux, Ubuntu, or one of the three Mint distros, all of which are actually based on Ubuntu, will probably be good choices. But more adventurous users will find Linux distributions for hackers, for programmers, 
for extremely old computers, and more. These are the kinds of choices not available to Windows or Mac OS users. So here I am coming down on both sides of the issue again, and you can imagine how painful it is to land squarely on the fence with one foot on either side. Yes, this should be the year of Linux. Yes, 1992 should have been the year of Linux, and every year between then and now should have been the year of Linux. So far, no year has been the year of Linux, and there's little reason to expect that 2020 will be any different. But it would be a nice 50th birthday present for Linus Torvalds. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, some PDF documents come with restrictions that attempt to prohibit printing the document or copying data from it. This can be annoying, particularly if you do have a legitimate need to print the document, extract text from it, or even edit it. Fortunately, there is a workaround. Adobe's PDF protections are not unlike an easily picked lock on a cardboard door. Many people seem not to know that, though, and assume that there is no way to unlock a locked file. Online2PDF.com can help with that. The site's online PDF converter can convert Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and a lot of other file types to PDF, but Microsoft Office applications already can save files in PDF format. Windows 10 has a PDF creation utility built in, and there are several free apps that create a virtual printer that can create a PDF from any application that can print. So that's not really a very important feature, is it? The important feature that the site offers is this, the ability to turn a PDF document into a Word, Excel, PowerPoint, or OpenOffice file, even if the PDF is restricted. PDF protection for printing, copying, and editing is removed automatically unless the file has a password. For read-protected PDF files, in other words, ones with a password, the correct password is required first. For PDF documents that require a password, smallpdf.com can probably remove it. When using that service, you do have to affirm that you have the right to view the unlocked file, but there's, of course, no way that that information can be validated. The online services do have limitations, usually regarding the size or quantity of PDF documents that can be processed. If you have a large PDF file or you have a lot of them, the PDF Restriction Remover application, which costs $30 from SysInfo Tools, is a good choice. There's also a free version, but it will place a watermark on every page of the file. These are all useful utilities. I've used them to recover files or to make the contents available when there's a legitimate need to remove the restrictions. A couple of examples. Someone who has left a company may have added restrictions to a PDF document. That person is now gone, and the company needs access to the information. Or the person who created a password-protected PDF document may simply have forgotten the password. These utilities can also serve as good reminders about security. 
If you need true security to protect the contents of a file, using Microsoft's or Adobe's password function is insufficient. A quick internet search will reveal that there are all kinds of utility applications and online services that do away with those protections. When true security is essential, encryption is the only viable solution. Applications such as 7-Zip can reduce the size of files and encrypt them securely so that applications and services such as the ones I've described here can't extract the information. Use with care. When something goes sideways with a Windows computer, starting the machine in safe mode is usually one of the first troubleshooting steps. But Microsoft made starting in safe mode harder, starting with Windows 8. The boot process could be interrupted in earlier versions by pressing F8 before the first graphical screen appeared. In 2007, I described several ways to get into safe mode. There's a link to that article on this week's TechMiter Worldwide website. There is another way that involves restoring the option to press F8 during the boot process. Microsoft made the change to speed the boot process slightly. Restoring the option will make the boot process take a few more seconds. And you may need to use the notebook computer's built-in monitor instead of an external monitor if you use F8 to interrupt the boot process once you've made this change. If the two conditions are sufficiently minor that you'd like to make that change, here's how. You'll need to use what's called bcdedit.exe. It's a command line tool that's used to modify the boot configuration data store. The boot configuration data store contains boot configuration parameters, big surprise there, right? And it also controls how the operating system is booted. These parameters were previously stored in the boot INI file for BIOS-based operating systems or in non-volatile RAM entries for extensible firmware interface-based operating systems. BCD edit can be used to add, delete, edit, and append entries to the boot configuration data store. Because this is a change that modifies the operating system, you will need to run the command prompt as an administrator. Press the Windows key, type CMD, select command prompt from the list. If you don't see a menu that offers Run as Administrator, right-click the app to display the context menu, then choose Run as Administrator. If you want to review the current settings, just type BCD Edit with no argument and press Enter. This will list the existing configuration, and you'll see Boot Menu Policy at the bottom of the list with a value of Standard. Next, type or copy and paste the command you'll see in the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. It's bcd edit forward slash set left brace default right brace boot menu policy legacy. Probably safer to copy and paste. Once you do that, press enter. You should immediately see a success message. To confirm the change, just type the BCD edit again with no arguments, and you'll see the boot menu policy entry down at the bottom now showing legacy. You will need to use the built-in screen if you press F8 to display the boot menu on a computer with external monitors. Otherwise, the boot process will be exactly the same as before, just a tiny bit slower. And if you decide you want to undo that change, you would repeat the process. The only difference would be instead of typing legacy, you type standard at the end of the command. Absolutely no adjustments are needed to view spare parts. Just visit the website. This week, when Windows doesn't work right, you might be tempted to wipe the disk and start over. Before using that big hammer, you can often save time and effort by repairing Windows instead. 
The Federal Communications Commission wants cellular providers to block fraudulent calls, but don't expect change anytime soon. In the meantime, it's up to us. Twenty years ago, a small but growing group of Linux fans predicted that Linux would take over the desktop. We're still waiting for that to happen. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.